Well, you can open up your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to conclude that chapter that we've spent a lot of time in over the last number of weeks, with a little bit of a break in between. This wonderful, very um, relevant chapter in many ways, as we've sought to apply God's Word to our lives uh, and to our church. Well, in spite of the fact that we live in a, in a culture in our day and age where the biggest objective, it seems, in public dialogue is to be politically correct, you know, where it's best to stay sort of in the, in the middle of the road and not get too extreme on that side or not get too extreme on that opinion, most times we really don't talk that way in informal settings or when we're just sort of chatting things up or or just shooting the breeze. We actually, when you think about it, talk in extremes. For example, if we don't like the way something tastes, we usually say something, that is the absolute worst thing I have ever tasted. And we can go the other way too. When we really like something, we say, that is the best thing ever. We make comparisons by using superlatives and sometimes even exaggerations. And mostly that's not a bad thing. It just makes our point with a little bit more clarity and forcefulness. But there are times when comparisons are not entirely one way or the other. Things aren't always the best or the worst. I remember a few years ago, I used to listen to a home improvement show on the radio on Saturday mornings. And uh, not that I applied anything I learned on that show, but... uh, But the host would often recommend methods of doing something or even uh, products that would work for specific projects. But when he would recommend the the different options, instead of comparing the worst and the best, his comparisons were always in terms of good, better, best. Some methods and some products were good, some are better, but there are other ones that would be the best ones to use for that particular application. There was no wrong way of doing it, but there was a better and the best way of doing something. Well, when the Apostle Paul compares marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks just like um, home improvement guy. He talks in terms of good and better, or a right way and a better way. And when it comes to marriage, you would think he might go one way, but he says that marriage is good and right, and we could add godly, but to be single, he says, is the better way. Now, that should make all of us say, huh? (laughs) Why would he say that? But the Bible does that to us a lot, doesn't it? God constantly does things and says things that to us humans, uh, we wouldn't expect. He does the unexpected. But what that does when he does those sort of things, it it just highlights his divine goodness or his uh, generous grace or his outrageous love. It's a supernatural sort of thing. But this teaching here in 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't just make us wonder what God's talking about. It also made the church there in Corinth, the original audience, especially those that had a Jewish background, wonder what Paul was talking about. Why would he 
raise up the single life. After all, the whole Old Covenant, the entirety of Jewish hopes was based on perpetual offspring and a continuing line of descendants among the people of God. And naturally, that happened through marriage and kids. That's the only way it could happen. And so the idea of marriage and family and children in a Jewish mindset was a picture of God's blessing, God's covenant blessings. So what's going on here when Paul says marriage is good and right, but uh, he who refrains from marriage will do better? I'll read that right away, but that's right from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 38. Well, among other things, it's a signal here that there's a shift, a a, a progression, a, a working out of God's great plan of salvation. Not that the old is done away with, but there's something in addition to the old that's coming. That's going on here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Covenant people of God, who was the nation of Israel, and the New Covenant people of God, which is the church. But Paul wasn't the first person to talk like that. Jesus himself started talking like this, maybe not as obviously as Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 7, but he was pointing to those same kinds of things. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus thought about divorce and remarriage from Matthew 19, where he, as we saw, he affirms the permanency of marriage. But right at the end of that section, the disciples respond, and they say, if if that's the way it is, if, if marriage is so narrow, as Jesus was painting it, if marriage has such a high standard, maybe they say it's better not to marry. Like I said, that would have been a radical thing for any Jew to say. Marriage was the, uh, without exception, expectation. And so Jesus might have been expected to say, no, you're wrong, it's not better. You have to get married. You have to have offspring. We depend on that for the survival of the people of God. But Jesus doesn't say that. In Matthew 19, verse 11, he says, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, he opens up another possibility. There are some people, admittedly a minority, who are especially enabled to not get married. And then he starts talking about, of all things, eunuchs, some of whom can't have intimate relations because of some physical issue, but others of whom have made themselves eunuchs. And he says this, for the sake of the kingdom. Then he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. That's a clue that something different is going on here. This is a new way of thinking for all those that would have heard it. Part of God's purpose for marriage is procreation. But something bigger is happening. Intentional singleness is also a possibility. Why? Not for the sake of offspring, but for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so singleness has some connection to the kingdom of heaven. It has some connection to the future. And that's a clue to what's coming uh, with Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. 
But Jesus also says some other things about the meaning of family. At one point, his family is there, and they come around to where Jesus is teaching, and they're waiting to talk to him. Now, for me, when some part of my family is waiting to talk to me, and, and there, is those, there are those times when that happens, when they just need to have access to me, but there are times when I'm in the office at work when I need to get something done, and I ask Shar, our, our receptionist, to hold all my calls, unless I say, my family calls, and they need to talk to me. Then I'll put everything aside and talk to them. They have access all the time. Well, here was Jesus' family calling. But Jesus seems almost dismissive. We could say, in a way, he seems callous, saying this. He says, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He's making a point that his spiritual family takes priority. And so Jesus really is inaugurating a new reality, a shift in thinking. He's putting the onus not on our physical families, but on our spiritual and our eternal families, namely all those who follow Jesus and who hear Jesus. And you'll remember, he even tells the Sadducees just before he was crucified, that in the resurrection, people would neither marry or be given in marriage. And all of that is sort of pointing out for us that marriage is not an eternal reality. And so I remind us of all that to help us see the progressive nature of God's revelation and of God's word. Jesus is trying to stress here that that marriage and family, the way we know it, is not the most important thing. And ultimately, blessing no longer comes through Jewish offspring, but through God's offspring, Namely, Jesus himself. It's through Jesus, through his birth, through his death, through his resurrection that we receive now spiritual blessings instead of material blessings that were associated with being married and having children. And of course, maybe unintentionally or maybe not, Jesus actually models that in that he was not married. You say, yeah, but he was Jesus. He was God incarnate, and and I'll give you that. But now fast forward to Paul. Here is God's main guy for spreading the gospel beyond the Jews and and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He's the one that's responsible for getting the gospel to the Gentiles. Is Paul married? No. He's single too. And he comes saying in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7, I wish... All were as I am. So, you're already in 1 Corinthians 7. Follow along as I now read verses 25 to 40. Paul is writing here under the inspiration of God the Spirit, and he's answering questions, as we learned, from the Corinthian church about relationships. And he's talked to a number of different groups already, categories of people, and now he's going to uh, talk to a new group here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be uh, married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Okay, just need to explain a couple of things. If you were reading from a Bible translation that's different from the one that I just read from, the English Standard Version, you probably noticed that it was different in some places. When I read betrothed, your translation might have had virgin. And that difference might be especially noticeable down in verses 36 and 38, where it's really hard to figure out to whom Paul is referring here. Now, I really don't want to spend a whole lot of time on those differences. This is is one of those chapters where it's hard to figure out what was going on in that culture and what situations Paul was actually writing to. But you just need to know that it really doesn't change the meaning of the passage. Whether Paul is talking to people that are engaged and and are deciding whether or not to get married, or whether he's talking to, as one translation says, to to fathers of daughters who are virgins, it, it, it doesn't change the main point. Paul is talking about the benefits for Christians of both getting married or staying single. And how neither is ultimately sinful or wrong. But he does talk about how there are certain advantages to being a single brother or sister in the Lord. And again, this isn't a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of good and better. And so I just want to take that subject for what's left of our time together. And I'm just going to go up to verse 35. In verses 36 to 40, Paul talks about some special categories of singles, the engaged and the widows. Um, But I just want us to think generally about God's word here to single Christians. So this isn't as much as a verse-by-verse, word-for-word exposition as sort of a a, a general um, lesson to two and four singles. This section is more than about being single, but it's not less than that. 
In churches, we give a lot of attention to those who are married, and rightfully so. We want our couples to recognize the fact that marriage is a reflection of the gospel, of sacrifice, of love, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and all those wonderful gospel truths. But the Bible also has some important things to say to Christian singles, and particularly Christian single adults. And singleness is actually no less a reflection of the gospel. So if you are in that category right now, this is for you. Some of you are content to be a Christian single. You know this is how God has gifted you. This passage has a word of encouragement and instruction for you. Others of you might really be struggling as a Christian single person. You're, you're praying for a spouse and you're waiting. And you're waiting. Well, the Bible has a word of encouragement and instruction for you. And some of you might be somewhere in between those places. You might be waiting for God to reveal his will for you regarding marriage. You're just not sure. Well, I hope this will encourage you as well. And for those of you that are married, this is for you too. This is a message for the church to recognize God's word to singles so that you can encourage and love your brothers and sisters in the Lord and, and to include them in, in all the one another commands of the New Testament. Our single Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ are an integral part of this church. In fact, we're going to find out that they have advantages that we who are married don't have. They're definitely not inferior. In fact, Paul says they will do better. And by living as Christians, they actually, in some ways, symbolize and, and, and point ahead to our future eternal state of existence. And so with that, I want to quickly walk us through some of the ways that Paul encourages single Christians from 1 Corinthians 7 and why he actually encourages singleness as being a better way. The first is that simply uh, singleness is a simpler life, especially during times of trial and hardship. You see that there in verses 26 to 28. And I'm taking the word translated as betrothed or virgin in in a general way as those who are single. Later it talks about the unmarried, and they would be in in that category as well. And so he says, look again at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And so you see that idea of hardship and trial at the beginning and at the end of those verses I read. He talks about the present distress in verse 26, and then he talks about worldly troubles at the end there of verse 28. It's hard to tell what Paul means or what he's talking about when he says the present distress. It it, it could be that there was just a food shortage of some kind, that there was a famine coming. Or he might actually just generally be talking about the time of persecution against Christians. Whatever it was, Paul said it was a time of distress, a a, a stressful time for the church. And then he goes back to the consistent argument of this whole chapter, and we talked about that last week. In view of the present distress, he says it's good for a person to remain as he is. If you're married, stay married. And and uh, specifically in this section, Paul's advice is if you're single, stay single. 
And then he says in verse 28, if single people end up getting married, they haven't sinned. But getting married does mean you will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. He's basically saying marriage is okay. It's good. It's right. But for you that are single, have you thought about the advantages of being single and the disadvantages of being married? Now, if you're here with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, and you're just, specifically your boyfriend, you're just waiting for your boyfriend to ask you to get married, you might want to plug, your, plug his ears and leave or something. <laughs> We've been waiting all this time, and now he's going to preach on staying single. Uh. But I think Paul is just getting practical here. Whenever there are times of distress, being married presents more issues than if someone's single. If the husband's life is in danger... He's concerned not only about leaving them without a husband and father, but also just the loss of provision for his wife and family. A single person won't have that concern, obviously. But he's also talking about troubles and concerns in a more general way. When someone is married, there are just increased responsibilities and difficulties. There's more pressure. That's what the word trouble literally means. It means Pressed together. Life for a single person is a simpler life. Not that he's saying here to stay single just for selfish reasons, just because you don't want any responsibilities, or you just want to be concerned about your own pleasures and a, and a wife or a husband is going to get in the way of that. That's not it. In fact, he's outright not saying that, just a bit further down. But here he says, just think about it. The single life might spare you troubles down the road. Some of you, if God has enabled you to live that kind of life, it might be the better way to go. And so Paul gives us advice, and again, it's advice, it's not a command, it's his opinion, just for practical reasons and for spiritual reasons. The the word worldly troubles also carries the meaning of afflictions of the flesh. That's what the word world is, fleshly troubles. I have a book that I like to recommend for couples when I do premarital counseling. It's called When Sinners Say I Do. And that about says it all. That's the issue when two people get married, where before you only had one sinner, now you've got two sinners joined together as one unit. As a single person, you've got your own sin to be worried about, and that's bad enough. But in marriage, you've got now two sinners packaged into one unit, because the two shall become one. And so it just adds pressure and and conflict and and volatility. Not that marriage is always and only that. Thankfully, through Christ, there is redemption. But even in the best and most godly marriages, there are times of of anger and of self-will and of pride and and even just of differing opinions and, and inconveniences. There are demands and responsibilities and conflicts and and sacrifices and, and well, worldly troubles. Troubles that don't exist for those who are single. Paul says, if possible, I would spare you that. So that's encouragement number one. The second encouragement for singles is that it is a sufficient life. That's the implication of verses 29 to 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let only those who have wives 
Let those who have wives live as though they'd ha- they had none, and, and those who mourn as though they weren't mourning, as those who rejoice as though they weren't rejoicing, as those who buy as though they had no goods, and as those who deal with the world, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So he starts here to talk about the temporal and the eternal. The, the appointed time has gotten very short. And at the end, he says, the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, whatever is going on in this life is not all there is. In fact, it's not the way it's going to be forever. It's only like this for a short time, and it's only a temporary existence, and then it's all going to be gone. And so in the middle there, he tells us how to live and to act with those realities in mind. And he starts out that list with marriage. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. By the way, that does not mean we, as husbands, neglect our duties to our wives. In other words, don't take this verse to mean that you can ignore your wife when she tells you to take out the garbage. Honey, you know, the Bible says I should live as if you did not exist. (laughs) That's not what this means. So don't say Pastor Dan told me not to, to regard you as if you didn't exist. He says the same thing about our state of mind, our, our sadness and our happiness. Now, they, they, they ultimately don't matter in view of eternity. Hold them loosely. And the same goes for our material goods. Live as though you had none. All of this is really pointing to the sufficiency of Christ. And it's, it's in the coming of the king and of the coming kingdom that all Christians will find true fulfillment and true satisfaction and true sufficiency. It's telling singles that the ultimate existence of the world doesn't depend on marriage or anything else that's only a this-world reality. Marriage is just a temporary thing that's confined to this world. And so you can live a completely fulfilled life when you major on those things that are lasting, those things that are eternal. And at the very top of that list is Christ. Just because you're not married does not mean that you're lacking something that is essential on the road to eternity. No. Being married isn't part of that eternal picture. If you want to live in this world with a view to the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus puts it, you can do that without being married. In fact, being single is actually closer to the eternal reality than being married. By living as a Christian single who worships God, you are a sign of a, of a spiritual reality in heaven. I love how uh, Barry Danilak puts it in his wonderful book, Redeeming Singleness. He says there that Christians who are single serve as signs because the world does not have a category for intentional singleness. Singles who live with this conviction that sufficiency is found only and ultimately in Christ provide a powerful testimony to the sufficiency of Christ for all things, to those both inside and outside the church. End quote. In other words, when you live your life with a, with a deep and an evident conviction that you believe Christ is sufficient for your life, when you are content and thrive in the way that he has enabled you, when you uh, orient your life around the cause of Christ, then you are a witness 
of God's power both in the church and in the world. You are a testimony by the way that you live. And that leads right into the third way of encouragement for singles here in 1 Corinthians 7. And that is that singles who are Christians can joyfully and fruitfully live a life of unhindered and undistracted service to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in verses 32 to 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He says there are good kinds of anxieties and bad kinds of anxieties. The, the unmarried are anxious to please God, and that's good. But the married are anxious about the things of the world. That's not as good, although it is just a fact. People that are married have divided interests. That's just the way it is for those who are married. Paul just talks about them as being anxious about worldly things in general, but I think he's specifically talking here about being concerned for one's spouse and family. Those actually might be the worldly things he's talking about, going back to his last point, that marriage is only of this world, but not of the new heavens and the new earth. A married person is concerned about his spouse and family, as they should be. Paul doesn't mean to say that married people shouldn't prioritize their family. They absolutely should do that. All he's saying is that Christians who are not married will not have those sorts of divided priorities, which means that they have greater opportunities to be devoted to God and to serve God. It's another case of good and better. Concern for family is good. Concern for the things of God is better. And that's the highest end for Christians, a concern from the, for the things of God. A good illustration of that was in the scripture passage I read before the sermon, the incident between Jesus and Mary and Martha. Martha had a good concern, but Mary had a better one. Luke describes Mary as listening to Jesus teach and Martha as being distracted with much serving. And Martha goes and asks, Jesus, why don't you care that Mary has left me to do all the work by myself? Jesus says this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha didn't have the wrong priority, but Mary had the better priority. And so in verse 34, back in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes that the single woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Paul's aim here for everyone, for every Christian, is to be anxious about the things of the Lord. But the unmarried person has better opportunities and less distractions that enable them to do that. He says there in verse 35 that he wants to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion, which really means service to the Lord. And so for you that are single Christians, this should be taken as an encouragement, but also, in a sense, a responsibility. He doesn't want to put a restraint on you, 
But think of that responsibility as being freed up now to serve God. You have uh, a singular ability, a single-minded opportunity to serve the Lord in a particular way that a married person does not. Married people, by necessity and by divine command, have divided interests. But you can give undivided devotion to God. So use your state of life, use your special enablement to give yourself to God and to be devoted to Jesus Christ. Well, this is just a scratching the surface, but I hope this is an encouragement for you that are single. You have a unique opportunity to serve God, and God has enabled you to, to do that for this particular time. I'm not sure what the future holds for you. It might be marriage. It might be being single for a while longer or forever. But make the most of this time for the Lord. And as a footnote to what we said at the beginning, I want to encourage you to make sure you see yourself as part of a wonderful spiritual family, which is the church. You need relationships, and the church offers relationships in the church as a way to find real, lasting fulfillment. So I would encourage you to build relationships within the family of God. Just because it, you don't have a physical family it doesn't mean you don't have a spiritual family, a family that really counts for now and for eternity. And for you who are part of the church, I want to strongly urge you to value those among us who are single. We have a wonderful, still fairly new ministry called Single Purpose. I love the name of that ministry. They meet here every second Saturday night for a Bible study and for fellowship. And if you're not part of that group and you are single, you fit into that category, they would love to have you join them. But for us as a church, let's not be content to allow this, to sort of funnel everyone towards that ministry. And to say, you go over there. Don't be content to just allow them to meet on their own. God, get to know your brothers and sisters. Serve them. Invite them over. Single Christians are part of the wonderful uh, tapestry that makes up our church. We have people from all nations. We have children. We have seniors. We have youth. We have married adults. And we have single adults. The church is not made up of groups. We're only... Uh, people that are in the same stage of life worship together. There is a place for that, but that's not all the church is, and that's not mostly what the church is. Part of the beauty of the church of God is that it's made up of all kinds of people. God has called us all together to be one body, to serve him and to serve one another. Let's covenant to do that until he comes for his church, for his bride. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Again, as it is so often, as it is all the time, it is so practical. And it seemingly leaves no one out. We thank you for these, maybe for some of us, somewhat surprising instructions from you as penned by the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for the reminder of the glories of the church. 
that it's made up of people from various stages of life and how each is important and how each is a reflection of the great truths of the gospel. This word today is for unmarried Christians, yes, but it's a word for all of us. Help us all to live lives of, of simple worship in which we regard Christ as absolutely sufficient for our needs and in which we desire to serve you first and foremost. Simplicity, sufficiency, and service, those are realities for all of us. Give us a desire to serve you first and foremost. For, for some of us, that means dealing with some things that might distract us from devotion to you. And for others of us, that means recognizing the fact that the door has been opened to us, uh, for us to undistracted devotion, undivided devotion and service to Christ. We pray that you would help each of us serve you and to love you with an un, undivided heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.